All right, well, brothers and sisters, as we come to the time where we are to hear from God's Word, let us turn in God's Word to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6. And as you're turning there, I want to begin with a question. How should we order our worship gathering? Here we are in a series on the worship of God's people. And have you ever stopped to ask yourself or to reflect upon how we should order the worship service? Well, this is actually the title of the fifth chapter in Matt Merker's excellent book, Corporate Worship. And uh, this isn't a commercial plug, but there are some available there in the, uh, the book card in the back. But I'm going to do something a little different this morning. My uh, introduction is going to come from Merker's book in the beginning of this chapter because I think he, in pointing to, of all things, uh, fast food line uh, in a, in a drive through helps us to begin to wrestle over this whole question of how should we order the gathering. So let's listen then from Merker here this morning. He writes, Your stomach rumbles. You pull into a parking lot and follow the drive through signs. Your mouth waters and you view high-definition photos of burgers and fries. You roll down your window. A voice crackles through the speaker. Welcome to, insert your favorite fast food chain, may I take your order? You ask for combo number seven. Right on cue, the car in front of you moves ahead. You inch forward and wait precisely 52 seconds. A clerk emerges from the window and announces your total is $6.99. You hand him your credit card. He gives you a receipt, which you sign in return. You wait 14 more seconds. Finally, he places a warm paper bag in your hands. You close your window, unwrap your lunch, take a bite, and return to the road. What I've described is a commonplace experience for millions, and yet it's also what we might call a liturgy, a predictable pattern of steps, an everyday sort of ritual. The storyline of a drive through experience, if I might put it that way, has a beginning, middle, and end. When we look closely, we find deep, even religious undertones. It starts with hunger and desire. The pilgrim draws near, joining other cars in the same lane. The menu offers a tantalizing promise of satisfaction. The cashier speaks first, inviting the driver to order. But a sacrifice is necessary, no free lunch here. The traveler, worshiper, must pay. We reach the climax of the drama when the food passes from restaurant to car. The story resolves in the joy of a hot meal. The clerk pronounces a benediction, have a nice day, and the driver departs in peace. Now, before you accuse me of reading too much into such a mundane event, notice that the whole thing has a necessary order. You must choose a dish before you pay, and pay before you eat. There are arrows on the ground telling you the right direction to go through the process. Each step matters on its own. But the pattern, the way in which the steps fit together, shapes what the experience is. Consider, too, that the liturgy of the drive through both reflects and reinforces the values of our age. It teaches us to prize speed and efficiency, anonymity and convenience. It trains us to treat food as a product that emerges magically when purchased. A drive through both showcases and perpetuates the reality that we are a culture of people on the go. He continues, don't worry. My point here isn't to bash fast food. Rather, I want us to notice that the order in which we do things matters. It trains our hearts. You see then how important the order of our worship is. Now, Merker used a word that may make some of you nervous. It's the word liturgy. But the word liturgy simply comes from the Greek and can be translated as public service, which means liturgy is work done for the public. So when we think of Christian liturgy, it refers to the service or ministry that is done for the people gathered, which means that every church has a liturgy. 
our church has a liturgy. We have a predictable pattern that we work through or that we go through in the ministry of gathered worship every Lord's Day. So the question is, is our worship services liturgy intentional or not? To begin to think through this a little more biblically, uh, we could uh, reflect upon the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, Paul writes to the church of Corinth, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. And then he goes on after going into more details to say in verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Do you see then that the order of our worship is important? Because the order of our worship forms and trains our hearts to live for God's glory in this world. That's why my goal this morning, through the preaching of the word, is to show you that Christ's gospel is what is to structure our meeting with God in worship. It is Christ's gospel that provides the order for our liturgy as a church. And there are five steps of a worship service which follow the pattern of the gospel. And so if you're taking notes, you can write them down. But you have a call, a cleansing, a consecrating, a communion, and a commissioning. So again, call, cleansing, consecrating, communion, and commissioning. And it's this gospel pattern that we see unfolding in Isaiah chapter 6. So let's read this chapter together. Again, Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which we had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. And then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down. So the holy seed shall be its stump. Well, brothers and sisters, before we continue, let us again go before our Lord or, 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 or draw close to his throne here this morning in prayer. Let us pray. Oh, Father. Here we continue to reflect upon what it means to meet with you in worship together as a church. 
And for many of us, we may have not ever thought about the importance of the order of our worship. Father, may you help us to see from your word the importance of the pattern that you have given us through Jesus Christ this morning. Because it's through his gospel that we are saved. And it's through his gospel that we are renewed. As those who continue to be saved by the ministry of Christ for us. So, Lord, we pray this morning that your word will fully be empowered through your Holy Spirit. So that our minds will be renewed and our lives will be transformed. That we will live faithful lives of obedience to your word, carrying out the mission you have given us as your people. Until Christ returns out of the gratitude for all that Christ has done for us. So, Father, we pray for these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So what do we see unfolding in this chapter? When Isaiah meets with God in worship, the order of this worship service includes four of the five steps I mentioned earlier. We find in this chapter a call, a cleansing, a consecrating, and a commissioning. So again, there's the the outline. Uh, But first we see the call in verses 1 to 4, the call to worship. And uh, as I've mentioned previously, when we study its uh, historical record, it's it's helpful for me at least, and hopefully for you, to ask uh, who, what, where, when, why, and how, right? Those six diagnostic questions. And uh, so I want to work through in these first verses at least four of them, when, who, what and where, because they're all given here in the first verse. So let's begin with the question, when, when does this take place? And in verse one, we see it's in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah ruled over the southern kingdom of Judah for 52 years in the capital city of Jerusalem. And in Second Kings chapter 15, we read a summary of King Uzziah's life and reign when we read, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed, the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So throughout this long reign of King Uzziah, he reigned faithfully, and he brought great peace and prosperity to the land. But in his final years, We also read that Uzziah betrayed God and was struck with leprosy. So he died under the shame of uncleanness before the Lord. So it's after these 52 years that Uzziah died, and this left the people of God in the midst of a national crisis and overwhelming disappointment. What would the future hold for this people of God? And that's what we learn then through the rest of the passage of Scripture. So we began with the question of when. Now let's deal with who. Who is involved in what is taking place in this chapter? Well, we go on to read in the next uh, phrase of this verse, I, I, the, 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 sorry, the, the prophet Isaiah is the one who is speaking here because He is a prophet who has been called by God here in this chapter to reveal God and his word to his people. See, it is to this prophet that God reveals himself in order to warn his people of the coming judgment for their sinfulness, as well as the promise of salvation that is to come in Jesus Christ. That's what the book of Isaiah is about. So we've asked when and who, but then what happens? Which we continue to read in this verse where Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. You see, Isaiah may have lost his earthly king, but his heavenly king is still reigning over the world from heaven. And he chooses to reveal himself here to Isaiah through a vision 
to show his glorious appearance to Isaiah. And as Isaiah writes of what he saw, he sees the the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, with a train of his robe filling the temple. You know, other thrones may have been set on high with with stairs and a, a platform so that everyone would have to look up to the king. But this throne, God's throne, is higher than all. It is lifted up above all. And the train of his robe fills the temple. Now, when I think of a train, I tend to think of wedding dresses, right? The the fabric that will extend beyond the dress behind the one who is married. Princess Diana, many of you may remember, had the longest train in the history of English royalty when she was married. It was 25 feet long. But the idea is that the train, it shows the, the greatness of the one who is wearing the gown. Well, kings also wore royal robes with trains. And the length of the king's train showed their greatness as a king. And what do we see about the train of this king? That it fills the temple. It's so large, it fills the temple. Which then brings us to the last question we've asked. When, who, what, but finally where, where does this take place? And it's in the temple. See, Isaiah's vision of the Lord takes place in the temple where God's people would gather to worship him. Now, this wouldn't have been Isaiah's first time in the temple to worship God. After all, he lived in Jerusalem and would have frequently been at the temple and experienced its worship services. But what makes this time different? It's that the Lord appears to him and calls his prophet to be in his presence. So God here meets with Isaiah in his temple, which is why on this day, Isaiah Isaiah sees the glory of God as he worships in his presence. God himself calls Isaiah into his presence in the temple so that Isaiah will be renewed and refreshed then through this worship. And as Isaiah looks up, what does he see? Not only the Lord sitting on the throne, but in verse 2, above it stood seraphim. These angels, literally meaning burning ones, is what seraphim means, who are standing above God's throne ready to serve him. And they are described, as the verse goes on, that Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. So there's these three pairs of wings that these angels have. And two of them covered the angel's face because God's glory was so overwhelming they respectfully cannot look directly at him. With two more wings, they covered their feet because they are unworthy to be in God's presence. And with two, they fly then to carry out God's will. But these angels, as they are standing above the throne of God, form two choirs that then sing a song of praise to each other. They cry out these words back and forth in an antiphonal, uh, sorry, in an antiphonal, Antiphonal song. You've got to try to use big words and it comes back to haunt you. Antiphonal songs where one sings, side sings, the other side sings, right? Back and forth, this takes place. And, and, and listen to the words of this song that they sing back and forth to each other in verse 3. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So they are crying out declarations of the Lord's holiness because God is separate from and superior to his creation and he sovereignly rules over his creation. See, God's holiness then means that he is holy, righteous, and pure. 
And this is repeated three times for emphasis. It's not merely said that he is holy or even he is holy, holy, but three times, thrice, it's stated that he is holy, 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 which is a superlative recognition of the holiness of God. And this holy Lord is the Lord of hosts. See, his covenant name over his people is revealed here as well as his lordship and uh, over the very hosts of heaven because he is the Lord of all. This is why their song continues by saying that the whole earth is full of his glory because God's glory is displayed through all of the earth and all of creation. And these angels, their praise is so loud that it causes the very temple itself to shake. Verse 4, And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Now, wouldn't it be a blessing if we sang so loudly with hearts filled with praise that the very walls of this building shook? That's what happens when the angels praise the Lord. But that's not all, because we also see how the temple filled with smoke. Do you know the importance of this? You know, in the Bible, smoke often represents God's presence. This is what we read back in Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 4, verses 4 to 5. You can turn back to, to see this. Here the uh, prophet Isaiah writes, When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create above every dwelling place of Mount Zion and above her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a covering. Do you see then how God is present? when his people worship. And Isaiah is given a glimpse of this through his vision. So when we come to church for our worship service, brothers and sisters, this is the God in whose presence we enter into. We are meeting with our thrice holy God. This is why we sing Behold our God, seated on the throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. So I ask you this morning, how do you respond to God's call to worship in his presence? Because we see how Isaiah responds next in verses 5 to 7, where we come to the second step of this order of worship in the temple. We began with the call, and now we come to cleansing. Cleansing. Because when we come into the presence of our holy God, we deserve to die under his judgment for our sin. See, when we meet with God, we deserve to die. Because holiness cannot tolerate any unholiness. Righteousness can tol cannot tolerate any unrighteousness. Justice cannot tolerate any injustice. So as we live in sinful rebellion against God, we live under God's wrath for our sinfulness. And it's only because of His love and patience and mercy that we continue to live rather than die. And even when we as Christians are saved through Jesus Christ by God's grace, listen, we too can only enter into His presence, His holy presence, through Christ's continuing grace being poured out in our lives. So here is a prophet of God who encounters God in worship and is immediately overwhelmed of his unworthiness to be in God's presence, which is why we go on to read in verse 5, Isaiah writes, So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. 
because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is there in the very presence of his holy God, and what does he say? Woe is me. And you know, this is the seventh woe that's recorded in the book of Isaiah. Remember the importance of the number seven in Scripture? Symbolizes completeness or fullness. That's why Genesis begins with the seven days of create the creation week, and why Revelation has sevens all over it. But let's consider Isaiah's seven woes. You can look back at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 8, when he pronounces this woe against God's people. Uh, Isaiah 5, 8, Woe to those who join house to house. They add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. Or look down at verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink who continue until the night till wine inflames them. We go down to verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Verse 21, woe to those who, uh, who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. And finally, verse 22, woe to men mighty at drinking wine, woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drinks. Six woes pronounced against God's people. And where's the seventh woe found? From Isaiah. From Isaiah. Because after calling down a curse on God's sinful people, Isaiah now calls down a curse of God among himself. That's why I appreciate St. Clair Ferguson's reflection when he writes here, One of the first lessons anyone ever taught me as a young Christian was this. The nearer you come to the Lord, the more sinful you will feel yourself to be. It cannot be any other way. Never lose sight of that. What is more, the whole Christian life involves an ever-repeated cycle of discovering fresh layers of sin to be dealt with and fresh supplies of forgiveness and cleansing. Isaiah 6 describes one of these moments, indeed the moment in Isaiah's life, when he made this rediscovery. So why... Does Isaiah say that he is undone in God's holy presence? He says because he is a man of unclean lips. Remember, the seraphs had praised God with pure lips. But Isaiah recognized himself as a sinner with unclean lips, and so he cannot praise God in his sin. And not only was the prophet Isaiah guilty of unclean lips, but so the entire nation of God's people, of Judah, the people of Judah, were unfit to praise God because of unclean lips. You see then how confessing our sin is a result of being in the presence of our heavenly King, who exposes how sinful we truly are. Have you ever thought that something was the color white? until it was compared with something that was actually white? You, you think a color of a car is white until you compare it to, say, a, 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 a sheet of, of bright, pure whiteness next to it. And you start to see the impurity, how it's not the, the pure white that you thought it was. Well, when, when we come into God's presence and the the the... the absolute and total purity of our holy God. We quickly see how far we are from being white and bright as he is. You know, when we compare ourselves with one another, we may think and we do think we are better than we are. But in the presence of God, there is no hiding. And our hearts and our very souls are shown how black they are in sin. Because God shows us the true nature of ourselves as we draw near to Him in worship. But brothers and sisters, here's the good news. 
that rather than strike Isaiah dead for his unclean lips, or rather than having the angels banish Isaiah from God's holy presence, what does the Lord do? He sends one of the seraphim down to him with a hot coal from the altar. That's what we read in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which we had taken by the tongs from the altar. Now this coal would have come then from a temple altar on which substitutionary sacrifices would have been offered for God's people to be able to approach God in worship as his purified people. See, it's through this coal from the altar that the angel would then cleanse and purify Isaiah's lips by touching his mouth with it. So we go on to read the next verse, verse 7, And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Now, you know how sensitive our lips are, right? There, there's a reason we kiss with our lips. Because it's through our lips that we feel. And here we have a hot coal that touches Isaiah's mouth by the angel's hand. How painful this would be. This would be excruciating and unbearable pain. This hot coal was burning and searing Isaiah's lips. But in doing so, the, the seraph explains why he has touched Isaiah's mouth with this coal. It's for the forgiveness of his sin. It's so that Isaiah's sin is atoned for through the action of this angel of our holy God. Isaiah must be cleansed to worship in God's presence. Which is why the angel provides the coal and touches his lips to cleanse him. As the verse says here, so that his iniquity is taken away and his sin is purged or atoned for. Now, brothers and sisters, something we need to remember here is that this is not Isaiah's conversion. Since he already believed in God. But Isaiah here remains a sinner who needs cleansing. And God alone can purify our lips to praise Him in worship. This is an ongoing need we have as God's people to be cleansed as we come into His presence in worship. You see then how this coal from the temple altar points forward to the greater sacrifice of Christ who died on the altar of the cross. How were we cleansed? How was Isaiah cleansed? Ultimately, it was by Christ who suffers the very pain that we deserve for our sin and undergoes the excruciating and unbearable death on the cross of Christ. So it's through Christ's sacrifice of Himself as our substitute that we are saved from God's wrath, that we are forgiven of our sins that we are reconciled with God and that we receive eternal life. See that Christ has atoned for the sin of all who believe in Him. So has He forgiven your sin? Has He forgiven your sin? Well, listen to me this morning. If He has not, then come to Christ. Turn away from your sins in repentance and turn to Christ in faith, trusting in all that Christ has done for you. Because in Christ, all your iniquities are taken away. All your sin is atoned for. And you, too, are cleansed by the blood of Christ. But as we've seen as Christians, we, too, still need the blood of Christ to cleanse us from our sin. 
which is why we read in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Yet as we reflect upon the worship services of our church, how often do we neglect this practice in our corporate worship today? How rare is it to find in churches today confession and the assurance of pardon that comes through a cleansing from the grace of God through Jesus Christ. So we began with the call to worship and then continue with the cleansing that takes place in worship. But this brings us then third to the consecrating in verse 8. Now that Isaiah has been cleansed by the hot coal of the altar, he is ready to hear from the Lord. But again, don't miss the order. When the Lord appeared to Isaiah, he initiates a meeting with him. And the only way that Isaiah could stand in God's presence is by confessing his sin and repentance and being purged of his sin by God's grace. Which is why before... Isaiah may have heard from the seraphim, but now that he has been called into the presence of God and cleansed from his sin, God himself speaks. And that's what we read in verse 8. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? See, as a prophet of God, the Lord now reveals his will to Isaiah. Isaiah then essentially receives a God-given sermon here through this verse. And what does God say to Isaiah in this sermon? He confronts him with a question. God wants to send out a messenger to his people. And who will he send out of all those who are gathered together at the temple to worship God? Who will hear his word and humbly obey? Well, having been accepted into God's heavenly presence, God's sermon immediately is applied to the heart of Isaiah. And in light of God's glory and grace, Isaiah volunteers to be sent. That's how verse 8 ends, right? Then I said, here am I. Send me. What did we see last week? In the sermon that our worship of God fuels our service to God. See, Isaiah's life is no longer his own, but he has been bought with a price. And so he is ready to obey God and follow his word by being sent out as his prophet. And as we think through the importance of this consecration as God's people in worship, this is why the sermon is the very center of our worship service. Because we too need to hear the voice of the Lord. You hear God's voice when his word is preached. Which confronts you then with how you grow in grace and godliness under his sovereign rule. This is why when we worship, we are, are driven afresh to hear from God as His Word is preached. And so we began by seeing in this worship service the call to worship and then continued with the cleansing in worship. And then thirdly, we've seen the consecrating that takes place through the sermon in worship. But finally, in verses 9 to 13, we come to the final step of this worship service or of this pattern of this worship service in the commissioning the commissioning of Isaiah see as Isaiah's time in God's presence come to an end he is sent out on mission to live out this calling before his people and so we read in verse 9 and God said go 
and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Now, does this sound familiar? Isaiah heard, go and tell this people. And what does Jesus say to his church? But go and make disciples of all the nations. And what is Isaiah's message? But one of warning God's people of remaining in their unbelief. They will hear, but not understand. They will see, but not perceive. And listen, this was also Jesus' message. That's what we read in Matthew 13, verse 13, when Jesus says, Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then Jesus quotes from these very words, as Matthew 13 continues. You see, then, our unbelief is not due to a lack of hearing from God. It's not due to a lack of seeing His revelation to us in this world. But as the Apostle Paul says, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so despite God's revelation through His creation and through His revelation in the Scriptures, we find ourselves in sin, plugging our ears and closing our eyes, running from God headlong into sin. And this is what Isaiah would prophesy over God's people, Judah. And what will the result of his ministry be? The hardening of their hearts so that they will be judged. Verse 10, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. So here we see the sovereignty of God over salvation. Because all of God's or all of Isaiah's prophesying and pleading will fall on deaf ears. See, his preaching will not bring hearing or understanding or returning to be healed, but will harden them in their sin. Which is how sinners will always respond to God's word without His grace opening our ears to hear and our hearts to understand. So preaching the gospel not only awakens the sinners to salvation, but it can also harden and does harden the sinner in their sinfulness. And the difference between the two is in God's sovereign election of His people to be saved, that He has so chosen a people to escape the judgment of God that we all deserve in our sin and to open our hearts to receive his salvation. But God chose for his people Judah to come under his judgment for their sin because the truth is that God doesn't owe anyone salvation. And this is why then those who hear Isaiah's words will be condemned. Isaiah hears this and his heart falls. So he responds to the question in verse 11. Then I said, Lord, how long, how long will this warning of judgment go unheard and unseen? And God replies with sobering words, not until their destruction is complete and my people are removed from this land. So we go on to read as verse 11 continues. And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, but yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming, as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. But did you hear that glimmer of hope? the end of these words of judgment in verse 13. Even in these divine words of judgment, God will preserve a holy seed through which His promise will continue until His promise of salvation finally arrives with the coming of Christ. So God's plans and purposes will not be frustrated by the sins of his people. 
but He will cleanse His people through the blood of Christ as they trust in the promise of Christ's coming. And it is with this hope that Isaiah then goes out to proclaim the Lord's judgment and wrath for sin and the great promise of God's salvation to come. But as we continue to reflect upon this worship service of Isaiah meeting with God in the temple, did you notice how there was a back and forth that had taken place between God and Isaiah here? It's because true worship is dialogical. Another fancy word. Which means there's a holy conversation that is going on between God and his people in worship. There is a back and forth communication that takes place in worship, right? God calls Isaiah into his presence and deserves the praise of worship, but then Isaiah confesses his sin and repentance back and forth, which is then cleansed through an act of God's grace. And now Isaiah is consecrated to receive God's word from his voice again with God speaking, to which Isaiah then responds with a commitment to obey God, and finally God then sending out Isaiah by commissioning him to preach God's word. We can even understand this back and forth in our own worship, right? God calls us into his presence in worship. Then we sing his praises, to which he then speaks to us through his word being preached, and then we respond through prayer. And then we continue singing until the, 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 the sermon is proclaimed and God's voice is heard. And then we respond until God sends us out on our mission through the week. This is, brothers and sisters, a gospel structure to our worship. And until Christ returns at the end of the age, our worship, too, ends with a commissioning. Because we are entrusted with the mission of gathering more worshipers through our evangelism and outreach. So they, too, will join with us in worshiping God for such a great salvation in Jesus Christ. You see, then, that when Isaiah meets with God in worship, that the order of his worship service includes four of the five gospel steps that I mentioned before. There's a call, a cleansing, a consecrating, and a commissioning. But what about that missing step? Remember, there's five. There's a call, a cleansing, a consecrating, a communion, and a commissioning. Well, communion is also to be included in the gospel structure of worship, where a fellowship with God over a meal is included. You know, you may think back to a previous sermon series when I preached over the life of Father Abraham, the book of Genesis. Do you remember what happened in Genesis chapter 18? But that Abraham communed with God and fellowship with him when God was present through a theophany? Or you may think of God's people as they are set free from slavery, that they are given a Passover meal to celebrate. See, this is the consistent pattern of worship throughout the Old Testament. You can check it out. It's what we see, for example, in Exodus chapters 19 through 24, when God frees the Hebrew people to be his people in his land under his rule. You see the call, the cleansing, the consecrating, the communion, and the commissioning take place. It's what we see, for example, the same pattern found in 2 Chronicles chapter 5-7, through 7, when King Solomon dedicates the Jerusalem temple so that Israel can meet with God in worship. Again, there's a call, a cleansing, a consecrating, a communion, and a commissioning. And brothers and sisters, what we see on this side of the cross is that the same gospel structure continues. Because it's the same gospel of Jesus Christ that saves the same gospel message in both the Old and the New Testament. Which is why what was promised in the Old is provided through Christ in the New. 
So it's Christ's gospel that must structure our meeting with him in worship. Do you see how Christ's gospel structures our meeting with God in worship? So what we've seen then through this series is that God calls our meeting, God schedules our meeting, God runs our meeting, God seeks true worshipers in our meeting, God invites others to join in our meeting, and God structures our meeting with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we, as a church, need to ask ourselves, how intentionally is our worship of God structured according to the gospel? And while I'm still learning about the importance of liturgy itself, I recognize that we need to be more intentional in structuring our worship service with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what has been practiced throughout the history of the Reformed tradition, a history of worship according to a gospel structure. And it's why, to give us a taste of Reformed liturgy, that our combined service next week will be following their order of worship. That doesn't mean that the Presbyterian way that we will be enjoying next week is the right way or that we'll begin doing exactly what they do. I certainly am not about to wear a Genevan gown, as their pastor does. But we will see how they intentionally structure their worship with a gospel structure. And in the months ahead, we will be working to develop a gospel structure here at Cornerstone. Now, we're not going to be doing anything radically different, but we want to order our services so that we will be refreshed and renewed each week so that our hearts will be trained to live out the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ as they more and more and more are reflected to our worship together as his people. So may we not dismiss the order of our service as unimportant or unnecessary. May we not dismiss the importance of liturgy as something that only high churches practice. But may we worship God with the gospel structure so that we are worshiping in spirit and truth in a way that forms and fashions our very heart and souls more and more to live out the glorious truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ as they're applied to our hearts. Let us pray. Father, How wonderful it is to be reminded of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is the gospel that saves us and it is the gospel that continues to save us until we are finally and fully saved when Jesus returns. May our very worship then together as a church continue this pattern that you have revealed in Scripture of the call to worship, the cleansing that we need in our worship, the consecrating that takes place as we receive your word preached in our worship, and the commissioning then that we receive as we are sent out through the week to carry out the mission of gathering other worshipers until our Savior returns. Father, we pray for all these things in the name of our glorious King, Jesus Christ.